0: Hello and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Dustin Pierce, Vice President of Infrastructure at Instacart. Dustin was previously the Director of Service Engineering at Slack, as well as the Head of Platform for Life360. In this episode, Dustin talks about the advances online shopping has made during the pandemic, where startups should place their priorities, the future of infrastructure, and much more. So please enjoy this conversation between Dustin Pierce, Vice President of Infrastructure at Instacart, and your host, Steve Hamm.
1: So I want to say hey to Dustin Pierce, our guest today on the podcast. He's the Vice President of Infrastructure for Instacart, one of the hottest startups in the land, in the country. And welcome, Dustin. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Tell us a little bit about your career. I see that you studied microbiology in college. When and why did you make the leap to information technology?
0: You know, it's, it's for me, it was interesting. I, I grew up around computers. My father was a, was a programmer and a systems architect back in the 70s. And so I grew up sitting in an IBM 360 room listening to my father halt those big mainframe computers. They would make this huge kind of loud klaxon sound. And I always thought computers were fantastic, but I never thought it would be my job. I was very into science. And so, after uh, I got towards the end of school, it was 1994, and that year is important because that's pretty much when the internet was hitting the scene. Netscape was coming on the scene, and I spent some time at Netscape doing some training. I was working at Genentech at the time, actually, after college, and uh, did some training on just webpage development. And I looked at just kind of web pages and the internet, and I said, holy mackerel, this is what I love. This is what I want to do. And uh, I marched back to Genentech, talked to an IT manager, said, hey, this is what I want to do. I don't want to do science. And I'll never forget that person had the greatest advice. They, they said, you know what? You don't want to work here. This is going to be huge. You should go out and just get a job at a consulting firm and just learn as much as you can. So I took his advice and I did. And that really launched my career into kind of IT. And, and primarily, my entire career has been focused around the internet.
1: You know, it's possible that our paths nearly crossed back in 1994 at the time i i worked for pc week inside and we we were learning about the internet and i actually called up those guys down at mosaic communications yeah. yeah you know down mountain view and said geez we'd like to learn a little bit more about web browsers so they invited us down and they gave us our first lessons in web browsers and of course at that time it was eight people mark andreas and an eight, and, and seven other engineers right. So we got in on the ground floor and it was just, isn't it amazing to think where we've come to in this, in only a few decades. (laughs) It's really remarkable, you know, and,
0: and, and and we'll talk about a little bit about how technology is becoming critical infrastructure and more so now than ever. And so it's been a, a, a really interesting and wild ride. It's wonderful to find something that you love to do. The old adage of if you love it, then it doesn't feel like work. And some days I still love to follow science. Science is getting increasingly more complicated every day. So in some ways I feel like computers are easier than science, but I've loved it. I love building things. And for me, My career has progressed very typical kind of consulting and then development. And then ultimately, at some point all along my career, I'm also a high school water polo coach and have been for a very long time. And so I think a combination of all of that coaching really drew me towards management and kind of supporting teams and doing strategy work. And so management's always been a large part of my career. And I think yeah. in the last, I'd say 10 years, I've been just really focused on like hyper growth startups or very rapidly growing startups yeah. and trying to help them.
1: You've been in a bunch of companies, mm-hmm. Life360, mm-hmm. Babysitter.com, more recently Slack, mm-hmm. some really hot companies. Yeah. And fast-growing, fast-changing, almost chaotic business environments. So you've come through these. You've been a manager. What are the lessons that you've learned about working in the hypergrowth environment that are guiding you now that you're at Instacart?
0: When I was at Slack, which was the fastest-growing company, I think, ever, certainly in an enterprise case the thing i noticed and noted was that things are accelerating meaning it, it, things happen very quickly and you have to change direction or you have to be responsive to to kind of opportunity or problems in a in a very rapid pace and i think it is actually a pace that is accelerating so much that it's a little unsettling for the humans that work there and trying to keep up with that pace and It is important for rapid-growing startups to really have a sense that speed has a toll on the people who are trying to go with it, and you have to try to find some kind of sense of sustainability. I think startups have to aggressively go after their markets, and, and I think the most important thing is they have to focus on innovating their product and moving as fast as they possibly can. and. The barriers to entry for business keep going down, and competitors can enter your space so fast that if you are not pedal to the metal, moving as quickly as you can to deliver more value and expand the value that you're offering your customers, somebody's going to blow right past you. And so I think that what I've learned is that there's this kind of inflection point, and for every company, it's a little different, where they have something to protect, they have product market fit they start to create a certain amount of revenue. And in order to protect that, they feel like they have to siphon some of their attention or their resources away from product innovation. And I think developing a very creative and very focused strategy on how are you going to do both? How can I build a company around this product? But how can I also keep pushing this product fast to stay away from my competitors is really critical. I think the last thing is one of the things we said, I used to say when I walked around the halls at Slack is that we don't ship code, is that we craft and we care for customer experiences. And this really goes to the kind of, you've heard other adages of if you build it, you run it. That development teams are not just trying to make a computer do things, is that they're delivering products to customers. And on a global scale, you have to pay attention to production. You have to pay attention to your customers because they all are having variable experiences. And so all of these things combined create, you know, a very challenging, very demanding environment. I think some of the things that were true in the 90s are still true now, which is when you work in these places, you get thrown into the fire and you learn faster than any place else you would ever work. Uh, So it is very demanding in that regard. But I think the idea of having a rapid impact and learning and iterating and being on the very edge is is really fun.
1: You arrived as VP for infrastructure at Instacart, I think, back in January, just before the COVID crisis hit. And, you know, these are truly remarkable times. So you came into this company at that time when its hyper growth took off even more. You're the guy who has to make sure that the the infrastructure is there and powering all the analytics that let them respond quickly. So it, it seems like an incredible job at an incredible time. So as you come in, what have you had to do? How have you had to react how are things going? Yeah, thanks thanks for asking. It is it has obviously been a very
0: wild ride. Slack was an interesting uh uh, journey, trying to create a global business communications network with five nines reliability uh, across the globe was a huge challenge and very taxing. And at some level, Instacart was a very fast moving and, and growing company, but it felt like that was going to be this kind of shift from this hyper stress of being responsible for business communications to grocery delivery. And it, it in my mind's eye, I felt like it was like a stress level down. Little did I know that <laughs> within three months that we would have total chaos. I think that COVID and, and, and the explosion and the demand for digital services in general, but certainly grocery delivery is, is chief among them, was unlike anything we've ever seen before. So I had been at Rapid Startups. The other executives at the team had, had been at Rapid Startups. But nothing even comes close to what we saw in March and April, where you have a company, depending on what metric you're looking at, scaling 10x in a matter of weeks. We were doubling every couple of days. And so, you know, I think that the key thing here is that At Instacart, a lot of this had to do with the people and the people on our team. And they were very focused on the responsibility. We felt this deep and grave responsibility to ensure that groceries were flowing. People really needed this service and they needed us to be able to scale it. Technically, there are a lot of challenges when this happens. Databases get stretched, systems get stretched, and engineers are working long hours. And all of that happened. But I think for me... I really appreciated this sense of mission and duty that the Instacart engineering team had. And for me as the leader, it's a lot of kind of making sure that people are feeling supported and we're cheering them on. Because while we're feeling this crush of growth, which may feel like success, we also cooped up at home. We have kids. All of our people are going through the same exact things and the same kind of amount of uncertainty uh, that everyone else is. And you're still trying to do this very challenging work. And so, I found my position as a leader was really trying to make sure that you have this kind of patience and compassion that, you know, hey, this may not matter in 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 years. You're really trying to keep things in perspective for people to keep people focused on what matters. A lot of prioritization decisions, a lot of triage of what is the issue that is, is, that is hurting us right now. And so, you know, for, for us, we were able to keep the site up through a lot of clever engineering. I think that a lot of the work that was done even before I got there, at least a year before I got there was a lot of investment that was being made in the infrastructure to make things scale that I think if we had not done, we would not have survived. And mm-hmm. there are lots of services that I think in that very crunch time, March and April, you saw that they just really couldn't serve the demand. At some point, the demand felt infinite.
1: When you came in, did you have to make any strategic shifts with technology or was it more like, oh, we've already got our right platform, we've got our right strategy, let's just scale it up?
0: Yeah, at some level, there was no time. Within two months... Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of time for me to make the really big strategic changes as far as our technology approach is concerned. I think for me, the key thing and the thing that I was really trying to do and and as an infrastructure team is to really tool and emphasize service ownership and good decision-making at the front lines. It's a very federated group. We have autonomous teams who own and operate infrastructure on their own. So this isn't this concept of centralization and it allows us to move very quickly. I do think that the strategic decisions really came in. What can we do right now to avoid downtime? And a lot of that is very technical around how you do you split databases and deal with database technology. Databases is really where you tend to have a choke point. And related to the, you know, Snowflake, services like this where you have set up relationships where it's essentially already somewhat of a bottomless pit, those are areas you don't have to worry about. And that was an area that just scaled right along with us. And we had a couple of vendors relationships where, It wasn't a lot of engineering on our part to make it happen. We just scaled the service up as we needed
1: it. I want to explore this, the kind of the crisis management you've been doing a little bit more. At the same time, you have all the things we've discussed. My sense is that the other things happening is there's really a drive for for having delivery the same day. And this compounds the issues of performance even Mm -hmm. more. But what I really want to get into is we've talked a bit about infrastructure and performance of the database, things like that, but talk about the kinds of analytics and the kinds of maybe even like machine learning stuff that your data scientists and your business analysts are doing at Instacart. How are they, what are they doing and how does your infrastructure enable sure. that?
0: I think the key thing to understand is that Instacart is a marketplace, right? It's a place where... Mm-hmm buyers and sellers come together for a relationship. And so there are people who need groceries and there are people who are willing to deliver those groceries or shop and deliver for those groceries. And so the key thing here is that you have to be able to, to, to balance the marketplace. If someone goes to make an order, Your service doesn't work if there's no one to shop and deliver it. And on the flip side, if there are too many people to shop and deliver it, then there is no work for them to do if there's no demand there. So from our perspective, one of the very important aspects of data that drives our business are the models that we create that really understand what we call availability, which is kind of availability of people to kind of take orders and then demand or this idea of what customers are shopping for groceries. And Mm -hmm. to me, what's fascinating is obviously this is very geographically different. There are rural areas that operate very different than urban centers, different geographies, different markets all have different evolutions or different kind of needs at different times. So if you think of COVID specifically This was not an instant thing that hit everywhere all at once. Different markets were having different kind of experiences. Some were locked down, some were not. Uh, They were locked down at different times. And so we need very good data in order to understand where do we need to apply our kind of uh, demand increase or supply increase? Where do we need to balance the marketplace? And I think in order to do all that, you have to crunch an enormous amount of data. And so for us, those models are trained by real-time feeds of data from our data warehouse into training our machine learning models. And then those characterize the marketplace availability. And it is a really fascinating kind of space because we are becoming more and more accustomed to these digital marketplaces, whether it's Amazon or, or others where sellers and buyers come together Etsy, I mean, you know, digital marketplaces is really the new shopping mall. And these things are owned and operated on a global scale. And to serve all of those markets and all of those people in ways that are meaningful to them requires a whole lot of data, a whole lot of segmentation and understanding of those markets.
1: I know that Instacart was one of those companies that was born on the cloud. Have you always had the data in the cloud or did you have some kind of on-premises databases and things like that handy for analytics and things like that?
0: So the last three companies, including Instacart I've been at, have had zero on-prem compute or storage. They're 100% cloud-based, whether that's their email or their data warehouse. And so what I find is that most, and Instacart is no stranger to that, a lot of them start their journey with a cloud provider-hosted service or a very simple, very large database. In, In the AWS world, a lot of people use Redshift, and I've seen that just about everywhere as the very first step along the journey. And then eventually, they start to run into concurrency problems or scale problems. And they really realize, oh, my goodness, to manage data at this scale, I'm going to have to build a team of people even to use this online service. And I think the needs evolve, and that has really seen the rise of some of these higher, what I would call higher order managed services um, that really abstract away some of that complexity.
1: I'm aware that some companies keep their data in the cloud, but when they do the data science, they pull the data down into on-premises machines right. and run it there. That seems really inefficient. What are the advantages and disadvantages of the two approaches? And why are you happy you're doing all in the cloud? I think for me,
0: you know, as a person who is responsible for security for a very large e-commerce marketplace, the access to data and, and where data goes is, is critically important right? And as soon as data starts to leave the cloud, leave the confines of what I would call a controlled or environment where the roles are defined and access levels are defined and it's put somewhere local, whether that's a protected data center or even like a, 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 let's say a machine algorithm, a developer's laptop, uh, you lose control and the chance of breaking trust with your customers just goes up and up. And it's just something companies these days can't afford to do. So, from an infrastructure security perspective, I feel like having online workflows for developers to work, this idea that you have to be online in order to develop algorithms is not an unthinkable thing anymore. Being online is, is, is just part of life. It's a basic utility. And so I think that there's some... older ideas that like I need to be offline in order to do this. And and that just doesn't ring true to me anymore. And certainly we get a lot of advantages by having things in the cloud. We get better collaboration, we get better control. And yeah, I I, I find that there is some amount of training or bringing people along the journey who maybe are used to older models and teaching them how to leverage cloud-based kind of development practices. But it certainly creates better velocity for us as a company.
1: Now, I know that the relationship between Instacart and Snowflake predates your time there. I'm not sure exactly when it did start, but it would be great if you could take us on a little walk down memory lane or down history lane and explain why did Instacart first go with Snowflake or first consider Snowflake?
0: There's two main kind of components, and, and I don't know the exact time, but I can tell you that it was simplicity and scale. And so the, the scale component is they were using very typical data warehouse technology from the cloud provider, from AWS. And right. if you back up a little bit, Instacart is a very data-centric company, right? And so you can imagine the demands on a data warehouse at a company that has that ingrained in its culture ramp up very quickly. And so the ability for multiple people to start asking lots of questions of this data warehouse at at the same time, very quickly revealed that this monolithic data warehouse was not going to cut it. This idea that there's a single place and everybody's asking their questions there. They just, things got slower and slower. And I think in order to accommodate that, and I've done this at like 60, we did it at Slack, you start engineering a lot of complexity to try to continue to provide access and performance for all the people who have these critical business questions. And in the time, I think Snowflake, the promise was that, hey, we can abstract away a lot of that problem for you. And we can certainly create a bottomless pit, but that's not necessarily the issue is that we can serve all your users simultaneously. We can scale up and provide them with performant queries and answer business questions. And that's been our core mission all along. Like we don't, We're not super excited about like, we are the best kind of open source implementation team in the world, because that doesn't necessarily do anything if it doesn't answer business questions. And so that's my kind of basic kind of, there's a couple others where I think being SQL based, there's been a lot of discussion and experimentation over the years around how to democratize data. And I think we find over and over again that SQL is just a somewhat universal language in that space and having a SQL based tool was really important. And there is native support internally as well for our event stream. We track so much data about the experience so we can understand it and improve it. And each of those events has its own little data structure. And the ability to just put that event in Snowflake and Snowflake knows what to do with it. And we can talk to the individual pieces without us having to do extra compute was a huge advantage. So again, it just really offloads a huge burden from us.
1: So that's a bit of the history. So how do you use Snowflake today? How does it fit into your overall technology strategy?
0: Yeah, the Snowflake is the centerpiece of decision-making at Instacart. And, and I mentioned that data-driven decision-making is critical in, in every aspect. So whether it's our planning cycle where people are trying to discover what are the areas we believe that we can make the biggest impact, whether it's tracking the execution of that planning, understanding the results All of that is embedded with, imbued, I should say, with data, right? So every goal is attached to some form of dashboard that is tracking and measuring the impact of of whether we're actually achieving what we're trying to do. You'll see that every single product team has embedded data scientists. This is how, you know, and and that's pretty rare. Like I I don't typically see that. Usually there's a small group, maybe data science group that's off to the side of specialists. They are not integrated in every aspect of product development. And so for us, being able to scale out our Snowflake usage and design warehouses and design complete kind of we say, functional areas and manage all of that capacity and help people understand what is actually in discovery is, has been a challenge, but it has been central to, to how we run our business. And more than just doing queries, we do things like invoicing directly out of Snowflake. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of operational kind of components to, to Snowflake and the data that we store there. So it's our master repository, if you will.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Snowflake, of course, is, is one of its own major users. I think almost every function in the company is handled through the data warehouse and the data platform. Right. And it sounds like you do the same. Yeah, I think it's a generation of startups, whether
0: it's Y Combinator (laughs) has imbued this kind of this idea. But my observation is that this is critical to moving fast and keeping your product innovation moving.
1: You know, it would be really helpful, Dustin, if you could walk us through one of your use cases for Snowflake. Just start with what was the problem? what, What did you need to accomplish? How does this do it? And what kind of results you're getting? I think the one of the more
0: interesting uh, use cases that I thought was relatively novel is that Instacart uses the snowflake for our catalog data. And the catalog for an e-commerce company is obviously a critical component. And for Instacart with tens of thousands of stores around the country and hundreds of partners, you can imagine each of those stores, those grocery stores, if you will, have inventory and have products and SKUs and our job is to try to make that as transparent to the user as possible. And so essentially, the process for moving data from the stores into Instacart is something that we really had a problem with scaling. And, and the issue there is not so much just the idea of picking up data from point A and putting it in database B. It's all the transformation that occurs along the process. How do you, you know detect duplicates? How do you detect price anomalies? There's very often the data inside, let's say, a store's uh, catalog that they're sending us just has the wrong information for pricing. And that can be really bad in an, in an online experience. And so we are constantly trying to data correct and to normalize the data looking for duplicates, because at the end of the day, the customers don't really understand the complexities of trying to merge 30,000 stores worth of catalogs. They just want to see is there Coca-Cola or is there not right. And So for us, moving our catalog into Snowflake was certainly an interesting storage story on on its own as far as uh, not using relational databases as you typically would and instead using this kind of data warehouse service. But for us, the use cases really revolve around this pipeline, this transformation pipeline. And there are features inside of Snowflake called uh, user-defined functions in JavaScript And that really allows us to do, beyond just SQL transformations, much more complicated and much more sophisticated transformations and checks of the data as it's flowing in. And the end result is that we were able to onboard new stores and new retailers in a matter of sometimes hours or even days. And I think this just really helps us build trust with our partners because you can imagine if I'm a grocery store or or even a big grocery store chain. And I realize, oh my goodness, like I have to be able to sell my stuff online. And you're staring down that. Imagine like how long you think it would take to get to that point to be able to deliver and how many people you'd have to hire and how much technology you'd have to master. And then we can come and partner with you and you can be up and running in a matter of days because of our ability to intake all of your data through this pipeline and normalize it into the marketplace. So this has been, I think- a really important component, not just to Instacart's growth, but in our ability to be ready to serve America in its time of need and be critical infrastructure as far as food delivery is concerned. And so it's a novel use case.
1: Yeah, well, that's really interesting. So when somebody shops on Instacart, do they shop at a particular retailer or do they shop for a particular item? Good question. The mechanics of uh, an Instacart order is
0: you make an order at a particular store. So the experience is that you are shopping at Grocer X, not that I'm looking for a grocery item and show me all the places it's at and let me pick on whatever price reviews. And, and I think that's a really important aspect. And we try to preserve as much this kind of the mentality because what we found early on is that people have strong brand affinity. This is my store. This is the store I go to. I trust them. I trust their produce. I trust that they don't put moldy bread out. And I think that based on our understanding of how people actually think about it, we were able to model our shopping experience very similar to how people think. When you look at Instacart and you see your store the place that has the butcher that you trust on there, then you are more inclined to engage than this kind of anonymous warehouse of meat that where my food comes from. People don't trust it. And so that's something we learned early on and and it really, I think has paid off.
1: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Though I think, I wonder about in terms of convenience, obviously, you know, I shop at four or five different grocery stores depending on what I'm looking for. Is there any way you can have a cart And have one delivery from several stores or is that just too complicated?
0: It's not too complicated and it is possible. I think that our experience is that creating that experience of going to different stores and creating different orders is not dissimilar to real life. And one of the things that was really interesting we found during COVID is that we had a large influx of less tech savvy, much older users that came onto the platform really quickly. And so we had to do a lot of very rapid user studies to understand our platform and try to make it as clear as possible. And so I think we're always learning and we're always trying to to innovate and make it easier to understand and make it easier to, to execute. I think that to me, it's about trust And it's about a positive experience, less than just like raw, brutal efficiency, right? The the shopping experience, particularly for groceries, is a very trust-driven relationship. Mm -hmm. Versus like if you're buying a set of headphones, you just look for the lowest price, right?
1: I get that. Hey, so, you know, you are a pretty serious technologist Mm -hmm. and a pretty serious manager of technology. Mm -hmm. And I'm just reading about your work and your interests you pay a lot of attention to, to cost. You pay a lot of attention to efficiencies. Mm-hmm. I think I believe that your field, your practice, is called infrastructure engineering. So I really wanted to understand what are, what is that, how, what's what's the worldview? How do you go about thinking, and how do you go about managing teams or managing the work?
0: Infrastructure engineering, I th- you know maybe in it's. Worst form is just a rebranding of what people would call ops, like a, a, a knock where people go and they carry pagers and they respond to when things are broken. It, it, is a, it is a kind of a holdover of the kind of data center days or some of the older methodologies for developing software where developers wrote code and operators were in production, but what I found was that over the years since two thousand and the, the dawn of agile and certainly the DevOps movement, I, I think most people realize that the the correct canonical way for organizing a software company to move fast to engage with its customers is a federated group of focused teams who have a lot of local agency to make decisions and over and over again, I think that people have both empirically experience this as the, the, the recipe for success. And so all of these companies are now following that pattern. But what I think they haven't found is that let's say all of a sudden now I have a thousand developers organized in a hundred teams. At some level, this starts to become very unwieldy. Either the, the user experience breaks down or the developer the experience breaks down. And so where I really see infrastructure in the modern era is trying to solve the problem of how do you scale these companies without breaking down the agency and velocity of these teams. Because the instinct companies have is to centralize, to create consistency, to create efficiency. Everybody's gonna use the same thing and that's gonna save us money and make us go faster. But you need to resist that instinct. That is true in some cases, but for the most part, your primary focus should be velocity of your product teams. And so infrastructure teams are really focused on how do we create feedback for those teams to make great decisions? So we hire specialists in security. We hire specialists in reliability and quality performance. And a lot of, especially the early engagements for infrastructure revolve around data. How do we return data to teams about the security position of the software they're creating or the quality or the reliability? And SRE falls into that model. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about uh, site reliability engineering. But I think that whether those people are using their expertise and embedded on a team to help them improve, or they're building tools that are being leveraged by many teams, the idea is still the same, that infrastructure is really there to reduce the cost of ownership, of service ownership for all of these teams all at once. And I think there's other disciplines that are also trying to solve this, like in product or design, of how do you unify a user experience across 100 teams? That's definitely a hard problem. But for us, it's how do we reduce the cost of ownership so those engineering teams can continue to move fast and innovate
1: so how do you coordinate with the other with your peers the, the people who are running other pieces of instacart's technology is there the same kind of dynamic between kind of independence and agency and the need for coordination and how do you
0: manage that what's interesting is that if you took a survey of infrastructure teams across software companies and you asked how many of you have product managers the answer would probably be zero. There's very little product management. And why that's significant is if you ask on the flip side on their development teams, how many of those have product managers? All of them, of course, they have to have product managers. And I think that this is a really important kind of disconnect because the way that we engage is that they are our customers. And so one of the biggest components of that is not just asking them what they want, it's studying, it's, it's observing, it's collecting data. There's a qualitative and a quantitative aspect to product development. And I think the challenge is that a lot of the people who find themselves in infrastructure are senior engineers who deal with issues of scale. They're not accustomed to, a, to providing service, right? Or to doing product development. And that's an area that at Instacart, we're really trying to develop this concept around how does an infrastructure team treat everyone else as customers? And how do we create a product factory internally that engages those customers in a way that is very similar to the way that those teams are engaging, let's say, our shoppers or our our users or customers. And I think that for me, this is somewhat of a passion. I think that uh, there's a larger burden on us to be transparent and be organized internally. A, A product team that is autonomous and has high agency, there's not a lot of context they have to share with the rest of the org in order to get their job done and so if you looked across let's say all the directors that work in my org the the directors that work in my org have a much higher burden for transparency and organization because they are coordinating across all of these teams and i think sometimes that is also hard to comprehend that we are different because our customers are
1: internal Now, I don't want to get too far down into the weeds here for for our listeners, but I am curious, you know, you've talked about Agile, you've talked about DevOps. These are two of the most important trends in software development. And I'm frankly going to admit that I don't really understand the distinction or the complementary aspects (laughs) of them. So (laughs) there seems to be a lot of overlap. So. What do you see as the key elements and differentiators in each of these? And and which approach do you use most? Sure. To me, in my mind, the distinction
0: agile was really about a, a, a smarter, kind of faster way to develop products. And DevOps was a smarter, faster way to own the products that you create. And I think that over time... It's really fascinating to me because you will see lots of different versions of the uh, buzzword DevOps. You'll see DevSecOps, DevFinOps. You'll see DevSecFinQualOps. Like you see these crazy acronyms. And, And the reason that they keep expanding is that what I try to say is that service ownership is really the natural evolution of DevOps. This idea that you're going to create something and then you're going to own and operate it. That's what cloud computing is all about and that's what users expect. Right. We no longer sell software on a CD anymore. It's, right. it's a service that you subscribe to. And so service ownership is a critical component of, of the evolution of DevOps. And all of the aspects of ownership that's financial that's security that's quality that's operations that's development are all integrated in that kind of concept of service ownership i think agile uh, itself is likely one of those things that becomes a dirty word over time it gets overloaded and even some the ceremonies and processes associated with it almost form a kind of uh, negative outlook. If you go to a development team and you're like, hey, I'm here to implement Agile, I don't think that they're going to be super excited with you these days just because they associate it with a lot of ceremony and process. And I think that there's good parts to Agile and there's probably parts that need to get back to first principles instead of tools, if, 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 if that makes right. sense. But I think that it is the de facto way to build software now. I nobody, I grew up writing what they used to call SRS, a software requirement specification, and it was a numbered document. And so it's requirement 10.1.2.3.1. And we used to have to try to, you, you had to be smart in creating your numbering schemes. And so this form of software development where I create a numbered spec, somebody writes the code and then somebody else tests against the spec is just really gone. It, I, I, I rarely see anyone doing that.
1: It's interesting to look at Agile, and it's been adopted in lots of other industries and lots of other processes out of software. I'm a journalist. I worked for many years at daily newspapers. I got to tell you, daily newspapers were Agile before Agile was Agile. You'd get up, you'd arrive at work at six o'clock in the morning, you'd have a scrum. Right. Right. Everybody race off and get it done. And then there was the process of the writing, the editing, the uh, typesetting, and the running of the press, all on a mad scramble. Right. And, uh, and that was the way we did it. So it's fun to see it coming back in all these other industries.
0: Yeah, I always felt Agile yeah. was an excuse to just like improvise. And that wasn't uh-huh. the point, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the yeah. point was yeah. get as close to your customer as possible and iterate as fast as you can. And do, don't create any process that detracts from that. But you have to be organized in order to create high quality software. These are very complex machines right. we're making. And so going YOLO and just freewheeling it and calling it agile, <laughs> the outcome is usually always the same. It's messy, it's messy right? Yeah. It, I don't need to do experiments yeah. to find out what humans believe about incomplete or bad software. I already know the outcome. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. right. We always end our podcast by asking people to cast into the future, to, to put on their visionary cap you know, in the air in your area of expertise. So cast ahead five years and give us a sense of like where we are now and where we'll be then and what difference that will make for businesses or even for consumers. I think that
0: as I work through these companies and, and, and I see some of the same challenges associated with scaling, it strikes me that the need for us to solve some of these key infrastructure components and, one of the key areas is the developer experience, right? What is the developer experience like? On one hand, it can be so stifling and so centralized and so painful because I have to learn all of these ways that the company forces me to do work that I just, it stifles creativity. And on the other hand, I have so much agency and I'm creating so much variety across the company that the complexity starts to cave in on itself. And so we haven't found a balance yet. And I think that a lot of what I'm seeing, and I mentioned before, is that the velocity of just the world, the amount of information, the competition is just keeps going faster and faster and faster. Slack was the fastest to a billion ever, but I guarantee that record will be broken almost immediately right? By the next people who come who will be even faster. And so I think that pressure is going to put a lot more demand on finding the balance. How does an infrastructure team create a developer experience that does abstract away some technical debt that allows, you know, teams to be creative and innovate, but is balanced in that it doesn't create so much complexity that the company implodes on itself and has to go through these surges is a very classic term you'll hear in silicon valley. we need to do a quality surge or reliability surge like those are strong signals that you likely are moving too late. and so uh, as you look forward i think that wasn't that long ago we were standing uh, in a data center and uh, we were pulling cable and we were ripping out drives and replacing them and we all said the cloud's cool but no one's going to use that for real work. and i think the same thing is somewhat true now in infrastructure where you look at managed services and people will look at a managed database or a managed kind of streaming process. And they'll say, that's great and all for people who don't know what they're doing. But hey, man, we know what we're doing. We're going to run our own Kafka, which is a streaming open source streaming service, or we're going to run our own MySQL databases. And I think the question will continually escalate to what's the value in you doing it yourself? And I think the answer to that is increasingly going to be more and more kind of subscriptions or cloud managed services for things that are not differentiating to your business. And I don't think that right. concept is new. Buy versus build has been around forever, forever. I can remember old IBM consultants giving the, the sage advice of never build something that doesn't differentiate your business. But I, I do believe like in, in today's time, the average software company has something like 300 SaaS subscriptions. Right. So this is accelerating and having the glue and the engineering teams internally to transform all of these tools into a cohesive experience is going to be the next big kind of breakthrough for tech. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's done at the infrastructure level? I believe so. Or is there kind of... Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's I think the
0: developer experience ultimately needs to fall on the infrastructure team. And mm-hmm. that's a combination of some, what you would call, let's say, low-level like networking and abstracting away the complexity of running a global network or of some of the, at Slack like we use this term, computering. <laughs> how to computer uh, can be complicated, especially at large yeah. scale. And so how do you abstract that away? And so you do have these kind of very detail, low-level kind of abstractions, but you have to go all the way up to the very, to the workflows and how work, how, what's the value stream for each thing? How does a bug get fixed? How does a new feature get solved? And how are you instrumenting those things and making sure that the, the you know, very lean product delivery concept and infrastructure of like, we're constantly evaluating our value streams.
1: You know, Dustin, it's been great speaking to you today. I have this vision of you. I feel like you're the guy down in the boiler room of the great and fast ship Instacart. But I feel like we've had a little lesson here or a big lesson Mm -hmm. here in, in infrastructure management, infrastructure engineering, teams, this great ongoing kind of balance that Organizations have to have between independence and and central control or standardization. And I think it's just, I I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the kind of work that has to be done uh, down in the boiler room to really make these amazing technologies that they, they interact with work and respond and always be there for them and things like that. So I think it's been really uh, instructional. It's been good talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. While I have the pulpit,
0: I will just do a quick pitch to the CEOs out there that effective investment in infrastructure is really your best defense against your next competitor, which is really just two women in a dorm room starting a company and they're coming for you. And so infrastructure is the easiest way to keep yourself ahead of the game. Well said, Dustin. Thank you. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe, so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com/data-cloud-world-tour.